Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. This morning we continue, we are continuing our study of Isaiah by looking at chapter 9, verse 8, all the way to chapter 12 and verse 6. We're going to finish out this section this morning. Now, um, we've embarked on this study of Isaiah over the last several weeks from a somewhat high-level point of view. That's our intention and our purpose. We're not drilling down into the details of every you know, clause and phrase. Uh, to do so would, would take an eternity. So we're leaving a lot, and I promise you, I'm leaving a lot on the cutting room floor every week as I prepare my notes. And as we read uh, through this, and I encourage you to read it as we go uh, in advance of these uh, messages, because we want to familiarize ourselves with the content um, Isaiah, as he writes, he writes like someone who believes himself to be essentially in the midpoint of human history. Um, he's too far from the beginning to go back, but he's also too far from the end to the finish line to see it in his lifetime. Um, but that median perspective that Isaiah has at the time that he writes means that he is uniquely equipped to survey the timeline of human history uh, and to focus our gaze back in, onto the past, into the present, and into the future in equal measure. And he will do that as we go through. You'll see him pivoting, talking about the past, uh, the present, his present, and even into the distant future. Um, and I just want us to think about, because we, we're not as familiar with the prophets and preaching through the prophets, if we're going to handle Isaiah and all the prophets rightly, um, Oh, there are a couple things that we need to be mindful of, and I just want to bring those to your attention this morning. First, texts, the texts, must be studied in their contexts. All right, that's so, that's so important. Isaiah was calling his hearers in that day and in that place to repentance and obedience. So, and that was a result of what was happening in their midst at that time. Uh, what was happening spiritually, what was happening practically, and what was happening uh, in the broader world stage of events with, it, with the nations around him. So understanding, for us, understanding the historical context is not some cold sort of academic exercise. That's not why we're doing it. That's not why I'm bringing those things to the foreground. It's meant to communicate and help us understand what was going on in that day and to bring that message to us with all the weightiness, all the conviction, all the hope that, um, that it ought to have. And, and so my job is to kind of take all of us back to the time of the prophet and to help us understand what was going on. Because that is the only way that we can really understand all the contours and colors of what he's talking about. Well, unless we do that, um, those things will get flattened out because we're just so far removed from those things. There was a sense of urgency in his preaching as you study it and read it. Uh, so we're digging into the context to draw that out. And only then are we able, as we understand the context, to see and feel the seriousness of it, the urgency of it. So that's why we're doing that. Isaiah has been privileged to understand God's mind, God's will, uh, and he has a timely message for God's people and even those who are not yet God's people. So the text must be studied in their context to benefit and profit from them. Secondly, as we study the prophets, we need to remember for whom the prophets are written. For whom the prophets are written. There's a predictive element. When we think about prophecy, we think about predictions of the future. That's, that's the first thing our minds go to. 
But the, the, the predictive element of prophecy is meant to persuade. It has a purpose. It's not just like a cheap parlor trick, like, oh, I can tell you what's going to happen. He is trying to persuade. It's meant to show the hearer and the reader the future outcomes of present actions and attitudes. That is his purpose. And so, so typically what happens, and I, I confess I have done this as well, is as you read the prophets and you study them, we will try to draw parallels to the state of our contemporary godless culture. And um, you, you hear the prophets condemning faithlessness. You hear the prophets condemning performative religion. You hear the prophets confronting idolatry and corruption and callousness toward the vulnerable. And you instinctively assume that he's addressing the unbelieving world, that, um, that he's talking to them, those wicked sinners out there. And, and yes, he, he does do that. The prophets do at times address the godless nations out there in the world. In fact, we're going to see that as we come to chapters 13 to 23. He, he warns the nations of the judgment that is bearing down on them because of their rebellion and their disobedience. But here's the thing. The bulk of Isaiah's preaching isn't aimed at them out there. It's actually aimed at us in here. Okay? It's pointed at God's people, not godless people. It's because there's so little difference between God's people and godless people that they're compelled, these prophets are compelled to confront God's covenant people to call them to repentance and to walk in obedience to the word that they have received. So the major, my point is the majority of the application of Isaiah's message, as you read it, is not for the godless, unbelieving culture. It is, you know, pagans are going to pagan. That's what they do, right? The, the, the majority of the application is for you and for me as God's new covenant people. Isaiah is confronting faithlessness in us. Isaiah is confronting performative religion in us. He's confronting idolatry in us. He is confronting corruption and falsehood in us. He is confronting callousness and uh, an indifference toward the vulnerable and the weak in our ranks. That is who he's addressing. Isaiah is like a physician of the soul diagnosing spiritual sickness within the camp. And so only when we come to terms with the spiritual disease of sin that is within us, that afflicts us, are we then prepared for him to apply the remedies of God's grace to our lives. There's no real hope for change. Uh, excuse me, there is real hope for change on this side of the cross because we have the Spirit of God and the fullness of the Word of God, but the two-edged scalpel of the prophetic word has to be allowed to cut. It has to be allowed to, um, to cut deep to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts if they're ever going to bring healing to us. And so, and so that is something we need to understand as we come to the prophet. If we're going to profit from the prophets, those are two things we need to keep in uh, the front of our minds, the context in which these things are being written, and the reality that he is writing not just to them or those people out there, but he's writing to us in the midst, in our midst. So as we come to chapter 7 to 12, which we've been looking at for the last two Sundays, both Israel and Judah are faced with a choice. They can either live by faith in the promises of God, or they can continue to live according to human policies 
human politics and per- their own personal efforts. And Isaiah has made plain that one path will lead to life and the other path leads to destruction. And we brought this out last week in chapter 7 and verse 9. At the very end of verse 9, he says uh, to, uh, to Judah, if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. And we said that that actually is a, a play on words. He says, if you will not believe, you surely will not be established. Literally, stand firm in your faith or you will not stand at all. Judah is a nation that is being eaten away bit by bit. They're growing weaker. They're growing more vulnerable. Um, and we tried to pull out some of the what, what was going on uh, politic, geopolitically in and around that region at that time. And there was just so little to be hopeful about. It was such a mess. They're, these are As we're reading these verses and these chapters, we have to understand it's dark. These are dark days in, in Israel. These are dark days in the divided kingdom of Judah. And the latest threats, whether that's Assyria or whether it's Israel in the north and Syria who have aligned themselves together, like those things are, um, they have, those, uh, th- those threats have provoked fear in their hearts, real fear. And we have to be honest, when, when we're fearful, we do stupid things, right? When we become fearful, we make uh, foolish choices. Uh, when fear rules in our hearts, foolishness is right there with it. And that is the challenge. And at a certain point, even, even the faithful in the land are beginning to wonder, will this promise of God's kingdom ever be realized? Because as we read earlier in our scripture reading, God had promised that the house of David would be established and that, that there would be um, uh, glory that would just continue on and on. But what they're looking around and seeing is disaster. And the, and the nation is being eaten away at the foundations. And so, you know, as, as he ends his preface in chapter 5, remember we said it was dark. It was all darkness and gloom and distress. But chapter 6 lays this foundation through God's confrontation, cleansing, and commission of Isaiah. He makes clear that death will not have the final word, which is the theme of this entire section. There is always hope for God to act, even when it seems like the lights have all gone out. There is always hope for divine action when the odds seem impossibly long. And the Holy Spirit records all those details of Isaiah's call to ministry, That was meant to deliver an important message from God himself, and that is that what the holy, thrice holy God has done for me and in me, individually, Isaiah says, he can do in you and for you, Judah. Death will not have the final word. And we said standing between the darkness of what is and what was in that day and what is to come is this promise of Emmanuel, God with us who brings salvation not just to Israel and Judah, but to the nations. And so God's answer, he wants to reaffirm that God's answer to the problem of sin is still going to be resolved in the greater and perfect son of David. That is his plan. But that resolution of the curse will not take place before God's purifying judgment uh, purges and scrubs the ungodliness and rebellion in Judah and Israel. Now, chapters 7 to 12, which we've been looking at, are sometimes referred to as the book of Emmanuel. The, the whole section has, a, has a, a, 
kind of a, a, a title you can hang on it, and that is the book of Emmanuel, because in chapter 7, in verse 9, and again in chapter 11, there is this um, detailed description of this Messiah, this anointed one. And in some ways, we said you can think of this whole section like a song from chapter 7 to verse 12 with a central theme and multiple verses that share a common structure, a common rhythm, a common melody. And we said there's a verse for Judah. We saw that last Sunday in chapter 7 to uh, verse, chapter 9, verse 7. And then there's a verse for Israel, which is what we're going to look at this morning, which were the northern ten tribes. At this time, the nation is divided, um, and they have been for some time. So we're going to see the verse that's addressed to Israel in chapter 9, verse 8, through chapter 11, verse 16. And the shape, we said, of each verse, the verse for Israel, the verse for Judah, it follows the same structure. It can be broken down into four parts. Decision. The second part is rejection. Thirdly, remnant and hope. So each verse kind of follows that parallel structure. Decision, rejection, remnant, and hope. So this morning, we're going to look at Isaiah's instruction, his word to Israel. You know, remember, he's in the south. He is in and around Jerusalem. That was where his primary ministry takes place. But it doesn't mean that he only speaks and addresses Judah. He's addressing Israel as well in the north. And everything that he is talking about this morning is primarily aimed at them. He is aiming it at Israel, not just Judah. And um, so we begin with this uh, heading of decision again, once again. Just as Isaiah writes to Judah, he is writing to Israel. These ten tribes that have broken off uh, way back when under Rehoboam and Jeroboam in uh, Solomon's sons uh, in 1 Kings chapter 12. Now they have been two nations essentially running side by side for many, many years. Uh, but, their, but the thing is their histories and their futures are like train tracks. They run in parallel. They're going the same, they're ending at the same destination The kingdom is divided here because of sin and rebellion, but there's a future day coming when the sinful and divided kingdoms will be one kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, which he will reign over for all eternity. So so he's addressing each group individually, but he hasn't conceded that that's how it's going to be forever. He has spoken to Judah. Now he's speaking to Israel, repeating, but we said not just repeating, also expanding what we've already seen in chapters 7, 8, and the beginning part of chapter 9. And we said the key that unlocks the blessing and the cursing, the favoring and the faltering of God's people all along has been and continues to be their rejection or acceptance of the word of God. That's the key. And you see that again in chapter 9 and verse 8. He begins with a word to Israel. He says, the Lord sends a message against Jacob, and it falls on Israel. Now, in the original language, the the word for word, or this word translated message, is at the beginning, which is unusual, which is emphatic in the way that he is saying this. This is the heart of the issue. That's his point. God has spoken. And Israel, like Judah, has a decision to make. Will they live by that word which God has spoken and the promises of God, or will they go their own direction? And that is what we see in Israel. In a thousand moments of decision, 
he is cho- they have chosen a DIY approach to their lives rather than submitting themselves to divine truth. And what Isaiah traces out from chapter 9, verse 9, all the way to 10, verse 4, is the brutal consequences that come when God's people abandon his word. In many ways, as we read through these uh, verses this morning, what amounts to, it essentially is a four, it amounts to a four stanza poem. It mirrors in so many ways Paul's description of God's abandoning a people that he lays out in Romans 1, verses 21 to 32. Very similar pattern. But each verse of this um, poem ends with a common refrain, and that is, in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. He says it in verse 12. He says it at the end of verse 17. He says, he says it um, uh, later on in chapter 10, verse 4, and again at the end of verse uh, 19. So there's just this constant refrain that God his judgment is coming. Isaiah describes essentially the internal collapse that ends not in just decline, but in actual dissolution. And I want to trace that pattern out for us so we can see it. The pattern is set in motion. First, in chapter 9, uh, in verse 9, with national collapse. National collapse. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 14 tells us that Jeroboam II for a very short season before all of this, he, he was actually reigned over a season of relative prosperity in Israel, uh, in the north. Uh, but when God's word is rejected, what goes up will come down, and it will come down hard and fast. And that's what you see during Isaiah's ministry. In the final 20 years before Israel is conquered and hauled off by the Assyrians, no less than six kings reign in Israel in 20 years. And four of those reigns ended in assassination. Only one king actually managed to pass the throne on to his son. And so this is a chaotic period in Israel's history. And amidst that chaos, Israel was absorbing body blow after body blow like a boxer being softened up in the ring. And, and, but each time Israel refused to acknowledge that God was disciplining them and they just continued to double down in their rebellion, pridefully assuming that they would build back better than they were before. And you see that spelled out in verses, uh, the beginning part of, uh, last part of verse 9 and beginning part of verse 10. He says, Ephraim is asserted in its pride and arrogance of heart. And this is what they're saying, verse 10. The bricks have fallen down, but we will, we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. In other words, he's saying, they're saying, yes, these bricks have been torn down, but we're going to build back better with smooth stones. Yes, these sycamores, right, which were just kind of a middle of the road, middle of the grade wood. Yeah, those things have been torn down, but we're going to build them back with cedars, which were kind of like the... the you know, the best of the best. There was this assumption, this prideful assumption that they would build back better than before, regardless of what God was doing in their midst. And because they would not humble themselves and chose to be like the godless nations around them, God has promised through the mouth of Isaiah that he is going to continue to stir up the surrounding nations around them to judge them. 
even nations that they had alliances with, like the Syrians, like the Arameans, same, same region, to devour them. You see that in verse 11. This is God speaking. Therefore, the Lord raises against them, against Israel, adversaries from Rezin, and spurs their enemies on, the Arameans on the east and the Philistines on the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaws. This is, God is going to use even their supposed, uh, excuse me, alliances in the Arameans. God is going to stir them up to trouble. And those, those surrounding nations, the Philistines we know are longtime enemies of Israel, they are going to ultimately devour Israel, he says, with gaping jaws. But this is only the beginning of national collapse because he ends there in verse 12. He says, in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. So national collapse gives way to political collapse in verses 13 to 17. When God's people turn their back on heavenly wisdom, human wisdom is all that's left to go on. And a lot of times, human wisdom is no wisdom at all. Their leaders model what is blatantly false, and those who follow them accept it and walk in their footsteps and become fools themselves. You see that in verse 13. He says, yet, yet, in spite of all this, the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cuts off the head and the tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush in a single day. The head is the elder and the honorable man. The prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide the people are leading them astray, and those who are guiding them, those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. Therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is, a, is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. He's saying, I'm going to, uh, the Lord is going to cut off the head and the tail. Bullrush, uh, palm branch and bullrush. In other words, top to bottom, side to side. This, the idea is total, total collapse. And he says, these leaders are leading others astray. This is a picture of a political collapse. The collapse of wise and principled leadership opens the floodgates to destruction. And that's what you see next in, in verses 18 to 21. National collapse gives way to political collapse, which gives way to societal collapse and anarchy. He says, for wickedness in this context, burns like fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It even sets the thickets of the forest aflame, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. By the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No man spares his brother. They slice off what is on the right hand, but are still hungry, and they eat what is on the left, but they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh. And together, they are against Judah. This is, a, this is the opening of the floodgates of selfish, self-seeking behavior. Isaiah describes it in, like, like fire sweeping through the land, and it starts small, and then it grows, and it consumes everything. And this is what you see happening, he says, uh, brother is against brother, 
Parent is against child. Tribe is against tribe. Ephraim and Manasseh, were, they were brothers. They were, they were supposed to be closest of allies. And here they are devouring one another. Sin will so powerfully destroy the fabric of society in Israel that they will literally tear themselves apart. But even then, even then God's wrath is not complete. He says in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. And so national collapse gives way to political collapse that gives way to societal collapse, which ends in captivity and exile. In verses 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 1 to chapter 10, verse 4, wicked men will rise up to fill the chaotic void and they will oppress the weak and the needy to enrich themselves and they will pervert justice. He says, woe to those who enact evil, an evil statute and those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that the widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphan. You know, if you look at the New Old Testament, God always describes himself as the one who is compassionately caring for the fatherless and the widow and the orphan, right? That's, that's one of the ways he describes himself again and again. But here, the opposite is happening. God is watching as his children are consuming the fatherless, the widow, and the orphan. But God is not mocked. God is not mocked. In a day of reckoning, he says, is coming when Yahweh will pull the plug on all of it. And through a series of rhetorical questions in verses 3 and 4, he makes clear that if they will not have God, they will have nothing. They will be left with two very unpleasant options, captivity or death. He says, now what will you do in the day of judgment and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or to fall among the slain. So national collapse gives way to political collapse, which gives way to societal collapse, which ends with the dissolution and death in exile. The implication, I think, as we look at this, is this. It may seem like a small thing for God's people to fall away from his word, but in the end, God's word falls on them. That's, there's an actual interplay here between the word fall in chapter 9, verse 8, and fall in chapter 10, verse 4, that kind of bookends this. Uh, right? God's word falls on them, and the rebellious fall among the slain. And you and I, like Judah and Israel, are left with a decision. Will you live by faith in the promises of God, or will you live by human intuition and watch as the wheels come off. Because it happens to nations. It happens to denominations. It happens to churches. And it happens to individual souls. This is the picture. Their moment of decision is upon them. Which leads us to the second point, which is rejection. We see that in chapter 10, verse 5, to chapter 10, verse 19. In this section, this passage, Isaiah deals with the Assyrian. He's basically uh, dealing with the Assyrian invasions that took place from 730-ish B.C. to 701 B.C. 
The Lord has a purifying work that he is going to do in Israel and Judah, and he is choosing to use the Assyrians to do it, to accomplish it. And what we have here is one of the most, the Bible's most significant statements on the nature of earthly history. We mentioned this in our overview. He describes the relationship between the kings of the world and the king of kings who sits on the throne. We said these verses affirm beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is divine control to every aspect of human history as it unfolds. Look at verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod, this is God speaking, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I send it against a, godly, a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. These verses affirm a philosophy of history. Two inanimate objects are described here in verse 5, a rod and the staff. And what he's, I think what the, what the imagery draws out is that the Assyrians, who were at that point were a growing superpower in the region, they have no ability except what the Lord gives them. They're inanimate objects as far as God's concerned. They are a rod and a staff. Assyria is an instrument in the Lord's hands. And what these verses teach us is how the historical events that you and I experience and that we chronicle year after year, you know, decade after decade, those, we have to understand, those things arise out of providential divine causes. But kings and leaders, the people upon whom the hinges of history outwardly turn, are themselves personal and responsible agents who will be held accountable for their wicked deeds. The Lord intended, the Lord intended a purifying judgment on account of Israel's rejection of his covenant, of his word. But that was not a serious purpose. They were not doing what they were doing to honor the Lord or to accomplish his purposes. The Assyrians intended to pridefully destroy and expand their empire. And you see that in verse 7. He says, this is what I've sent them to do. They are a rod to accomplish my goals. But he says, yet it, Assyria, does not so intend, verse 7, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather... It is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, Are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish, or Hamath like Arpad, or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images, just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? He's like, they don't even have as many idols as the nations we've already conquered. We can reach in there and grab that too. This is their attitude. But the Lord has a righteous purpose to fulfill. And he is demonstrating his holy wrath against the godlessness of his people. And the Assyrians had their purpose, and that was a sinful purpose, to show off their military power and exalt its leaders. And both of those realities are true at the same time. That's what we need to understand. God has his purposes. Man has his purposes. Both can be true. And as we saw back in the preface in chapter 2, God tolerates no rivals. 
He does not share his glory with another. So a day of reckoning is coming. And that is what Isaiah spells out in vivid detail in the end of this section in verses 12 to 19. He says, So it will be when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, this work of judgment. He will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this. For I have understanding, and I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. But look at what God says in verse 15. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors, talking of Assyria. And under his glory, a fire will be kindled like a burning flame, and the light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a single day. He will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away, and the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. In other words, if you think wicked Assyria is going to get off the hook because they're God's instrument, he says, think again. Think again. God's judgment on Israel and Judah was a just judgment. But the doing of it by Assyria was a morally outrageous, and they receive divine retribution. This is a good reminder to us of two things. First, what God, what men mean for evil, God uses for good, right? It's Romans 8. God works all things together for good to those who love him. So we need to understand that even when evil things happen to us and around us, that is part of God's will of decree. But I think a second thing that we can draw out of this in terms of implication is this, that means, the means by which we accomplish certain ends matter. Motives matter to God. It's not just about the end but the means. We might be convinced that we are doing the Lord's work, but if our motives are not the glory of God, if our motives are not his holy purposes, but rather to pridefully conquer our foes or to exalt ourselves, watch out. Watch out, because God's whip snaps back with a fierce, fierce blow. And so means matter, motives matter. So we see the decision, the heading of decision. We see rejection. Now we see a remnant. It's, it is a fascinating contrast here between the end of this section and the beginning of the next. As we saw in Judah's, uh, the Lord's verse for Judah, contained within God's judgment, there is a work of salvation that's happening within that. God never ultimately abandons his people, even when it looks like the lights have all gone out. There's such a stark contrast here between, because divine judgment falls on Assyria, and what does it do? It hollows them out and leaves them like chaff 
which the winds of time will blow away. When Assyria is judged, there's nothing left. But when God's purifying judgment falls on Israel and Judah, what does it happen? He leaves behind a true and believing remnant. Look at verse 20. Now in that day, this is Isaiah talking about the future, the indeterminate future. In that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a little while, while my indignation against you will be spent, my anger will be directed to their destruction. He's saying, there's going to be a judgment. It's going to be a purifying judgment, and not everyone's going to pass through. But when it's all done, there'll be a remnant. And then I will deal with them, the ones who did this to you. And then we see the Lord's victory described in verses 33 and 34. Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. Speaking of Assyria, those who are Tall in stature will be cut down, and those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. He's describing the destruction that will take place in Assyria. They will come to the, verse 32, they will come to the land of Jerusalem, but they will come only so far. They will not ultimately prevail, and then God will cut them down. And so Assyria, who was themselves the axe in God's hand, what does he happen here? What happens here? They feel the axe themselves. There's an there's a intentionality to the language and the imagery that Isaiah is recycling as he's going through this. The axe in God's hand, Assyria, feels the axe itself. God's purifying judgment cuts down the lofty. He cuts down the exalted. He clears the forest floor and lets the light of the word shine through. And when that light shines through, a new and holy branch emerges. I'm always amazed when you look, in, when, uh, when you, developers will clear something, land that's, that's just really tall, mature growth. They clear the whole thing out to the ground level. And in a matter of weeks, what happens? Things are starting to grow again. And that's the picture here. And that leads us into the fourth and final point. We've seen decision, rejection, remnant. And lastly, God describes hope. Hope in chapter 11. Just as the light of messianic hope spoke to Judah back in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, and that was in the backdrop of darkness. Here, the shoot of messianic hope spoken to Israel is seen in contrast to this ground-clearing operation that purges all earthly powers in chapter 10. When the king of kings reigns over a restored world, all earthly powers will have been brought to heel. 
Now, chapter 11 is one of those examples of what we said earlier, where Isaiah is not just repeating himself, but he's elaborating, because this is so much more detailed than chapter 9. We get a much grander picture of the greater David, God with us, this light shining in the darkness. And here's what we learn as we look at chapter 11. We see four aspects of his um, ministry and of his character. First, in chapters 11, verses 1 and 2, we see his ancestry, Messiah's ancestry and gifting. It says, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. See, remember we said the expectation has always been since God made that covenant promise with David that there would be a king who would rule in righteousness. But it wouldn't just be any king. He was going to be David's son, the greater and perfect David. And when Jesse produces a shoot and a branch, that shoot and branch is David. That's why Jesse is mentioned here. He is David's father. And so the the question is, would God keep his promises to David? That was the question that was in the back of their minds. Will he keep his promises? And Isaiah 11 makes it clear that he will. But he's no ordinary man. As we saw from chapter 7, he doesn't have an ordinary birth. He is born of a virgin. He doesn't have an ordinary title or names. In chapter 9, he's called the Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Wonderful Counselor. These are all descriptions of a godlike man. This branch from Jesse is uniquely empowered, verse 2, and indwelt by the Spirit of the Lord, which abides on him. And and his, his gifting is nothing like what a man has. He says the Spirit of the Lord rests on him. The Spirit gives this anointed one wisdom and understanding, gives him counsel and strength, gives him knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This Davidic king has perfect wisdom and understanding for governance. governance. He has perfect uh, counsel and strength for war, and he, he has perfect knowledge and fear for spiritual leadership. He is, he is, there was never a king in Israel or Judah ever like this, which just emphasizes how unique Messiah will be. So we see his, his, his um, ancestry and his gifting. Secondly, we see his rule in verses 3 to 5. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, this one will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lip, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be a belt about his loins. Faithfulness, the belt about his waist. These verses describe the way he will carry out his offices. Messiah will be a perfect guide. He will be a guardian. He will be an example for all to follow. His whole life will be lived under the control of the Spirit. Notice there are no rash or impulsive judgments here. There's no unrighteousness, no decisions that are made in haste. Righteousness literally becomes a belt that encircles him, faithfulness about his waist. This is a this is perfect righteousness, perfect faithfulness. 
we see not only his ancestry and gifting and his, um, in his rule, we also see his world, the world that he presides over is described in verses 6 to 9. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. He rules, Messiah rules over a new order. This is completely unlike the fallen and broken world that we live in now. The picture is of natures transformed. Enmities as a result of the fall are abolished. And the dangers as a consequence of sin, those things disappear. They're just gone. How can this be? Verse 9, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Here's the reason. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord is present in his holiness everywhere. The knowledge of him is enjoyed and delighted in everywhere. This is a new heaven and a new earth. And lastly, we see in verses 10 to 16, Isaiah describes his influence, the worldwide influence. The scene in these final verses is of Messiah exalted in the whole earth, having led a worldwide exodus for his people out of bondage. He uses the language of the exodus here. Then it will happen, he says, on that day, again, this is speaking about an indeterminate future day, that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand. You say the second time. What was the first time? The first time is when he took his people out of Israel. And then he says he will recover the second time with his hand. But this time, he says, the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria and Egypt, Pathros and Cush, uh, Elam and Shinar and Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is an ingathering, not just of Israel and Judah, but of the nations. It's an ingathering of the nations, and the Lord's Messiah stands as the signal or the banner for people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In ancient times, a banner or, or a flag was set up on the battlefield. It would be flown high to signal the troops where to rally. And here Isaiah personifies Messiah as, and basically he is the banner that draws people to himself. The image here is of a new exodus, a new exodus. Verse 15, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind and he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left just, just this is the comparison, as there was for Israel in the day that he, they came up out of the land of Egypt. This is a new exodus. When God led his people out of Egypt, he parted the seas and they walked over the land dry shod. When God brought, led his people across the Jordan into the promised land, he parted the waters and they went over dry shod. 
And when God leads his people out of bondage to sin and into the new heavens and the new earth, he will lead them into that heavenly rest dry shod. There will be nothing standing between them and that. This is the Lord's complete and miraculous work. The imagery here is intentionally rich and reflective and dramatic. And who is this shoot from Jesse, who is also in verse 10 described as the root? How can you be a shoot and a root? Who is this miraculous virgin-born child who will be called mighty God, this one who will rule and reign on David's throne forever and ever? It is none other than the Lord Jesus. It is Christ. Because as the Gospels tell us, he was born of a virgin, Matthew 1, verses 22 to 23. He is the son of David, meaning the shoot of David, but he is also the root of David, Matthew 22, verses 42 to 45. Right? Jesus says, who, who is the Messiah's come from? And they say, oh, he's the son of David. Well, so why, does he, why does he say, and he quotes Psalm 110, why does he say that uh, he's David's Lord if he's his son? Well, because he's the root. He's the one who is eternal. He is God's beloved son in whom the Father was well pleased and upon whom the Holy Spirit rested like a dove, Matthew 3, verses 16 to 17, at his baptism. We see this imagery. Jesus fulfills it all. There is no one else who fulfills these promises. And so he is truly, God is truly, uh, Jesus is truly God with us. That's the point. The gospel record tells us that when he was lifted up from the earth upon the cross, he says, I will draw all men to myself. Because he is the one in whom salvation is found and no one else. But he didn't just die in the place of sinners. He, he rose from the grave on the third day, and he's coming back to establish his kingdom. And the question that this text begs of us to ask is, are you ready for that? Are you ready for that day? Because no man knows the day or the hour. The, 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 that day, when he says in that day, it's, it's intentionally unclear. Because we are not to know the day or the hour at any moment. And that he wanted his hearers to understand that that could happen at any moment. Are you ready? Because only those who come to him by faith will find themselves among the remnant of his people. Chapter 12 bookends what began way back in chapter 6. They form, I said, a complete unit. Isaiah's Set in chapter 6, describes all of his confrontation with the holiness of God, God's cleansing. Chapter 6 ends with a holy remnant. So we have confrontation, cleansing, and a remnant. In a similar way, chapter 7 to 11 describe Judah and Israel's confrontation with holiness, God's cleansing, and it ends with a remnant. And the point is this, what God has done in and for Isaiah individually, he says, he will accomplish in and for Judah, in Israel, and his people. And who will accomplish this salvation? Who will resolve this curse? It is none other than the righteous root and shoot of Jesse. And what does that saving work produce? Chapter 12, 
verse 1, 2, and 3, it produces a heart of praise and thanksgiving. And this is how it ends. Then, he says, you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. God's saving work believed on and trusted in the person of his son produces praise and thanksgiving in the hearts of his people. But it doesn't just produce a heart of praise, it produces proclamation. Look at verses 4 and 5. And in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted, praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitants of Zion. This section began all way back in chapter 5. It began in darkness and distress. Do you remember that? It was the lights were going out at the end of chapter 5. God was nowhere to be found in the people's midst. But how does it end? Look at the end of verse 6. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And that's how it will be for us. What began in darkness and distress will end with God with us. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for behold, the first things have passed away. This is what Isaiah is describing here. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The enduring value of Isaiah and the prophets, among other things, is that they nourish and they strengthen our faith in the triune God whose promises are still being worked out. And what looked beyond all possibility, then it came to pass. What looked absolutely hopeless and self-defeating to Isaiah's audience, we now, now, we now understand that that served God's purposes perfectly. Israel's defeat and exile, Judah's wasting away and their exile, the people's return to the land, the coming of Messiah, the triumph of the cross and the resurrection, all seemed to be impossible. It seemed like a pipe dream as they looked upon their situation, and yet God accomplished his saving purposes just as he promised. And so, as we come to these words by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and others, we have to understand past faithfulness produces present endurance. Looking back strengthens our faith to go on trusting as we look ahead. And we might ask yourself today, will God do what he promised? And the message of this section is, yes, he will. God keeps his promises. Death 
does not have the final word. What he has done in Isaiah and what he will do in Israel and Judah and what he is doing in us, he will do for all his people. And they will be with him forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that you're a God who keeps your promises. We, we, we don't keep our promises. We make promises all the time and make commitments and we never follow through on them. And or we, we are faithless and fickle. You are faithful. As we read this morning in our call to worship, your steadfast love endures, not for a season or for a moment, but forever. Lord, help us to cling to those realities. May the promises of God uh, laid out here for the people in Israel and Judah, may those realities grip our hearts and that we might walk by faith in you, trusting in your word, trusting in your son. And if there's any here this morning, Lord, who have not come to you, have not it fully surrendered their heart and life in trust and faith, looking away from all their own efforts, confessing and acknowledging their sin, Lord, there's any in your midst, in their, our midst without confidence in that, Lord, may you not let them slide away today before they have an opportunity to, in their heart of hearts, die to self and trust their whole life and soul and eternity to Christ because we know that you are faithful. Lord, we thank you that you love sinners with a holy love. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.